Question number 11 is what we're looking at this evening. Question number 11 is, is this. What are God's works of providence? A wandering baby. That's one of them. <laughs> what are God's works of providence? And then the answer is God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So you remember the second half of question eight where how does God execute his decrees? It's through creation and providence. So we're looking at the second half of that one tonight. We saw creation the other day, or last week. We're going to look at providence tonight. So the first was being creation. How did it all get here, and how did it get here in this way? And then tonight what we're looking at is, well, then how does it all work? And you see the answer, if you think about it, it has two parts. It has two subjects and three properties. So the two parts are the preserving and governing. That's what we're going to look at first. So in God's providence, he's preserving and governing everything. And then we'll look at the two subjects, which is all creatures and all actions, and then the three properties, holy, wise, and powerful. So the first part is preserving. What is it to, for God to preserve all things? When you hear preserve, especially you in the South with your jellies, what are preserves? It's fruit. You kept around, right? Yeah. You just put it in a jar. Yeah. <laughs> you just ate it. You, you it continues and upholds is the way you can think about it. Is the first part of how it's preserving. is continuing and upholding. That's direct. That's God's direct action in preserving. A good passage for that. We won't have them up on the screen tonight because we don't have the Rosses back there, man, in the, the board. But Psalm 119 81, 89 through 91. You can turn there and look at it if you want to. The psalmist writes, 119, 89, he says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever and firmly fixed. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. So he's continuing and upholding in those verses. God is keeping things in effect that he started, like gravity. He's keeping that in effect. It always works, whether you think it or not. The planets are keeping in orbit. One of the things I think about the most is the functioning cells in your body. You think about that? Like the micro cells, the, each one of them has to keep functioning. And, 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 and when I was in sixth grade, we had to make a cell... Like out of Play-Doh, so you know, like a green thing for the nucleus and another one for, I forgot all the rest of the parts. <laughs> Didn't do great on that science, I don't think. But there's, I mean, how many of those are there just in one organ of your body? One square inch of your skin? I mean, and all of those things are being continued and upheld on that level. I mean, it's a magnanimous thing to think about God's providence in that way. And he's fixed the order of the cosmos. And that's being preserved by God. If you think about um, way the way evolution is talked about, everything should be winding down. Like we should be losing momentum, right? Because nothing's continuing to act on creation or act on me so that it's an object in motion can stay in motion as it's continually powered. And eventually inertia is slowing it down, right? But it's not. What's keeping it spinning? 
The same thing, what's keeping the, the, the water cycle going in the same ways. It's God's providence. So that's, that's the, the direct action is the continuing and the upholding. But the indirect actions of his preserving is providing what is necessary. That's another way that God preserves us. Because you think, I mean, think about it. he preserves grass, trees, flora and fauna by sending rain, right? He's, he's, that's not direct, right? It's not God like physically keeping our cells intact, but he's sending rain so that they get, the plants can drink it all up and then it can go there. So it's a more indirect way. Preserving, I mean, and you think about this, another indirect way. How does God preserve in the Western world, the United States, a premature baby? We have a NICU, right? Babies can go to the NICU, and, and that's God's preservation. That even though where there's layers and layers of technology and development and enhancement, that's an indirect preserving because he's providing what is necessary for that baby to live. It was God's will for that baby to live, born too early, too early, according to God's plan, and he provided what was necessary in order for that baby to live. So we think about God's indirect and direct preserving. So a great passage for that, Psalm 145, 15 and 16, when he talks about the indirectness of it, is that he says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. So the indirect action is it's not that every animal is coming to a set place in time and God is physically opening up his hands full of fruit or grass or meat or whatever the animal needs or whatever we need. But the psalmist is saying that through trees and through grasslands and through smaller animals, he is preserving all of creation. It's finding its food and sustenance through you but through secondary means, indirect ways. So we can see that. So now we're on part number two. That was part number one was preserving in the question and the answer. And then part number two is governing. So this is the ruling and the directing all things towards his ends. He's governing. That God does have a decree and he is moving history toward that end. That's one thing about Christianity, worldview-wise, that we're different than other religions because they view history as cyclical, Right? Buddhism, Hinduism, obviously with the reincarnation. Like you're just, you're just riding that wheel and you want to get on a better wheel. But it just keeps coming back around. You want to have a better experience the next time you're on the Ferris wheel. But Christianity, the scriptures say that there is a terminus. Like it's, history is linear. It's not just going over and over again. While there may be repeated behaviors, there's not, it's not an unending cycle that God's moving things towards the end, that there is a story, a meta-narrative. It's not just a... Um, a, uh, a functioning mechanism that we got plopped into and we want to find the best experience we can have in it. Much as other worldviews and other religions. So God is moving. That's this governing. That's part number two. So it's preserving and governing. It's ruling and directing history, which means then, this is, this is the part where we got to bring it down. It's easy to think of God ruling history, but what is history made up of? People, right? It's made up of people. So that means God has to govern people and their actions. Because when we think of history, we think of just like big moments or scenes or time periods or places. But those are all meaningful and memorable and historical because there was people there that chose to do something versus choosing to do something else. So when we say God is governing that, he's governing people and their decisions. So that's where providence gets a little sticky. You're like, yeah, wait, wait a minute. 
Let's look at some verses so you don't think I'm just lying to you. Proverbs 16, verse 9. This is a good one. and we, We've heard it before, but I don't know if we thought about it in this context. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I'm making my plans, but God says you're only going to step where I let you step. Jeremiah says it kind of in a converse view. In Jeremiah 10, 23, he says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. Jeremiah 10, 23. If you need that, you can just ask it, Allison. You don't have to look on Scott. He's not going to write it down right anyway. He, he's not going to write it down right. <laughs> That's like copying off of the, the C student. <laughs> That's how I knew. (laughs) That's the kid who's not in danger of anybody looking at him. He can just lean back in his chair. Jeremiah, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. He's like, I know that. I know his ways is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. It's you, God. So he's looking at it from a negative perspective. It's not in us to direct our own steps. It's God who does it. Why should we draw comfort from that? That sound, I mean, immediately when we hear that kind of thing, what we think is, I mean, that's violating me, and that's, I mean, that's making me a robot. I don't like that. And, but if you're going to look at it rationally in the world we live in, the actual world we live in, not the one we wished we lived in, why would that be comforting? She's got it. Because my, 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 my is back there. But think, that means every election, every military coup, every holocaust, Every terrorist attack is being governed by the God of the universe. These big historical events, the ones that we think are awful, God is governing them. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute, but, with, but that should bring us comfort that it's not as if those things are outside of God's control or his reach. That, that he is in, like you can make your, bet, your plans, but God's going to have happen what he wants to have happen. That he is the ultimate decision maker. He governs people and directs them. All right, so that was, those are the two parts, the governing and preserving of the, of the answer. But the question goes on to say, his, mo- his works of providence are his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving and governing of what? Of all his creatures and all their actions. So the first thing is, is all his creatures, everything that he has made, everything that exists is subject to God's providential governing. But he does have, so that we, we understand that to be true, but he does have a special providence for his children. We know that from Matthew 6, 26 through 23, these passages that are really familiar. Let me just read it, and you'll know you've heard it before. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, those passages, what we often, we come to those passages like, this is just how to not worry. So don't worry because there's other things going on or it's not going to help you, it's not going to worry. But what's the real root of that? Why are you not worrying? God's controlling and providentially governing and preserving down things down to the littlest minutia. Birds and when they land. Flowers and what color they are and how well they grow. 
time periods. So then you should be more worshipful because he's governing you more specially. That's what you're supposed to take away. If he's governing those things that we think are trivial, we have more value than that. So there's a special governing of us as his people. And Matthew 10, 29 and 31 through 31 says similar things that we've, again, these are so familiar to us. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not fall to the ground dead, but just land on the ground. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So God has, I mean, it makes sense. He has a special providence for his children. So it's all creatures. We understand that. But honing in on his children, that it makes, that's how we function. A, a man could, or, or a woman with their job could love and serve and provide for lots of people through what they do. But they have a special way of doing that for their kids, right? Like Mickey coaching soft baseball, right? You give special favor to your son, don't you? <laughs> no! Ah, I almost caught you in it. But that's kind of the trope, right? Like the coach's kid gets to always play shortstop, bat in the three-hole, and never get pulled out. And he gets to pitch and catch. <laughs> so I'm super aware of that when I'm coaching Little League. I, like, I don't want anybody. I never bat him in the four-hole. Like, we just let him, and never let him play too much on these things. Because that's the thing, like you get favoritism if you're the kids. And nobody's like, you know, because I'd do that if it were me. If we're really honest, that's why yeah, I want to coach, so I can get my kid to go play in the pros. Which never happens. They all just go find him in Venezuela. But have you ever seen those? Uh, I can't remember which one it is. Paul, you might remember. There's a famous scene where I can't remember what president, his kids just burst into the Oval Office. And they just, he just lets them come in. I can't remember if it was JFK Roosevelt, that's who it was. And he just let them interrupt like the heads of state. And, and, uh, and they're all like flabbergasted, but like, you don't understand, these are his kids. And if you're the kids of the most powerful man in the world, then you get a special providence. And in the sense that special care is given to you. And in a way that, you know, we think about God, but the difference between sparrows and us, like, well, it, it's, does it boil down to the same control in a sense that he you know he's he's providentially governing and preserving us just like he is them and what's the difference the difference is we would have to look at a verse like john 3 16 he loved us or john romans 5 8 he demonstrated his love towards us it's it's a it's a love versus just a cold management that he has so we we get that it makes sense it's not an accident that we're called the bride of christ and the children of god those are love terms of love special i'm going to treat my wife differently than i treat every other woman in the whole church in the whole state and country and world i'm gonna treat my kids differently too so a special eye of providential care for us that's the the subject or the uh, that the um the part of the subject all all his creatures but the second subject is all the actions of his creatures now this is where we're going to get sticky so follow me here so first of all just natural actions just normal everyday functions right so the sun came up today it was raining there's traffic on the highway just normal actions you see that in Acts 17 28 where the apostle says in him we live and move and have our being really popular verse in him we live and move and have our being just everything that goes on today, whether or not they had the right kind of coffee when I got Starbucks, before I went to work, all those kinds of things. We live and move and have our being. God's governing those actions that we do. 
And then we can move to morally good actions. So those are just natural functionings of, of, of things that we do that just are, for lack of a better word, you say neutral. What about morally good actions? Well, yeah, well, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. We've heard that before. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, meaning you can't do anything of value. You can't do anything good apart from Christ. That we are altogether not good apart from Christ. That we cannot know, no one does good, not even one, Romans 3.10. So we have to morally good, he's governing those actions. But then we get into this one, morally evil actions. Is God's providence extend to that? Is he governing and preserving over those things? Well, now let's think about it. How can God be providential over evil? I've heard in church my whole life that God can't even look at evil. It's so repulsive to him. We've all, I mean, we've heard that before. And when you hear that, who do you think of? What superhero do you think of? You think of Superman with kryptonite, right? That's what sin is to God. It's like, ah, I can't even be around it. It's so repulsive and gross. But the flaw of that is, is that kryptonite has power over Superman. It has a power over him. So we, t- we think about it like it's so repulsive that God just, ah, get, get away from it like a vampire in the sunlight. That, it, that, I'm, that I'm super powerful, but there's this one thing that I don't have anything to do with, and I can't have anything to do with. And if I have something to do with it, then I, it, it will corrupt me or something. But that's a misinterpretation of Habakkuk 1.13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That's where we get that from. But, but the context of that is Habakkuk is whining to God and saying, wait a minute, God, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I told you that Israel was wicked and evil. I was complaining to you as the prophet that they're not obeying. And then you said you were going to punish them, but you're going to punish them with the Chaldeans. You can't do that because they're worse than we are. It's like I can make fun of my brother, but you can't make fun of my brother. Like I want things on my terms. You can't punish them. They're worse than us. And you're so pure. You can't, you can't condone evil and they're evil. So this is Habakkuk really dealing with this whole issue. You can't be sovereign over them. They're evil. You you can use me to punish them. That's great. Habakkuk is thinking, like, I'll be happy to go out there and just start cracking skulls. But you can't use them. That's where that comes from. So it's a misinterpretation of those kinds of things. And all we have to do is real quick, don't turn there, but you just go to Job 1 and 2. Whose idea is it for Job to suffer? It's God's. God's, Satan just comes like strolling in at God's permission into the throne room or into some heavenly location. And he says, where you been? I've been roaming all over the earth. He goes, oh, did you get to Job's house? That wasn't on Satan's agenda. God just brings it up. And he goes, no, I didn't. But if I did, he'd curse you. No, he wouldn't. Well, let me do it. Okay, let's him do it. And then 1 Kings 22 where Micaiah is before King Ahab giving him horrible advice to go out to war, and Ahab knows he's lying. And he goes, yeah, you know what? God told me it in these 40 false prophets to tell you to go out to war. There God is using, using evil. So he's sovereign over that for his own glory. So let's look at these three areas of God's providence over sin. He does permit 
people to sin. Acts 14, 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. That's what it says. He allowed them to do that. So they're so sovereign over the whole universe, has full authority over all things. He's allowing that sin to happen in one way. But God also restrains people's sins. This, this dawned on me reading through Genesis several years ago in chapter 20, the first time Abraham says to his wife, Sarah, hey, you're really pretty, and we're going into this foreign king's country, and they're going to kill me to get to you, so why don't I just give them to you by telling them you're my sister? How about that? Pretty terrible husband right there. Like, we can just abound. And then, then yet Sarah's told, we're told that, that women are supposed to be like Sarah in 1 Peter 3. That's a whole other thing. But the first time he does it was with King Abimelech in Genesis 20, verse 6. And so he's got Sarah basically on hold, goes to bed at night, and Abraham's like, well, hope you fare okay, Sarah. And God comes to that king in a dream and says, I'm going to kill you for taking another man's wife. And then he talks back in the dream. You don't get a whole lot of understanding of the situation, but Abimelech is talking back to God, Yahweh of Israel. And he's like, no, I didn't touch her. What are you talking about? Like, I didn't even touch her. And he told me that she, he, she was his sister. God responds like this in Genesis 20, verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, meaning you, you took her based on, on a, thinking that she wasn't married. I know, I know that you've done this integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So God tells this pagan king who's saying, no, I'm innocent. He goes, you are, because I kept you innocent. So God he restrains people's sins. But God also uses people's sin for the good that they themselves did not intend. And Joseph's the classic story of that, right? Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God is providential over sin. Joseph's brothers were not saying, you know what? We're going to do this thing to Joseph. It's going to be really hard for him. It's going to be tough. But man, God's going to use it in his life. We're going to just go ahead and love our brother by throwing him in a hole telling our daddy's dead and then pulling him out and selling him to some traders and then sending him down to Egypt. This would be good for our little brother. We know. No, their, their heart is sinful. They hate God. We want him to be dead. We want to defy God. But Joseph says here, what, God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He can take your sinful actions that are intended by sinful hearts and use them for good. He's sovereign over that sin. Now, he didn't commit that sin and he didn't originate that sin. But he's using that sin for his own good to keep many people alive, says Joseph. So now let's ask this question. What if God was not governing or directing people's sins? If you really get down to that, then we would live in constant fear and hopelessness. If he wasn't, constant fear and hopelessness, because that means that there is one area of human behavior that Romans 3 tells us everybody lives in who is not a Christian that God it can't do anything about. He can't stop it. He can't abate it. He can't use it. He can't turn it for good. He can't bless me by it. He can't protect me from it. 
because it's kryptonite to him, and he's got to get away from it. And that's the alternative if we're really going to get down to it. We, we need this kind of God. We need this kind of God. He would be out of control and weaker than his creator God that you pray to. That's a God you just hope to placate because he's sovereign over this one area, which is how all pagan religions work, right? Uh, we're not having good crops. We now to make sacrifices to the crop God. Because he can't do anything about our infertility, or he can't be, do anything about our wars that we have going on, but he can do something about the crops, so that we just go to him for that. He's impotent for these other things. That's not the God that we serve. He's the Almighty, omnipotent. All right, so then lastly, the three properties of his providence. So he has two parts, governing and preserving, two subjects, all creatures, all their actions, and then three properties, so the, the adjectives, so holy, wise, and um, powerful. So the first one is holy. His providence is holy. He can't do anything that isn't holy. And that's especially comforting when we think about what we just talked about with the sin thing, right? That God's not creating sin, he's not defiled by sin, and he's not just uh, uh, the dark night, right? Like, I got to do something wrong in order for something to good to come ultimately. I got to get my hands dirty in order for ultimately the goodest good to come about. That's not what we have. We have a holy God. Everything that he does is always holy. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. That, that word kind is usually trans, or traditionally translated as holy. Holy in all his works. The ESV makes it say kind. But holy in all his works. That's He's righteous in all his ways. And secondly, it's wise. Everything he does is the best decision. Psalm 104, 24. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. How intricate and exhaustive are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. You ever thought about that? That God's will, his providence can't be improved upon? We don't live in that kind of world, right? Like, we live, everything can be improved upon. When y'all were young, I'm not, I'm not talking to you, Mickey. When y'all were young, did you ever think you'd walk around with a television in your pocket that you can talk through and look at other people? Paul did. Paul had that kind of wisdom, Star Trek. I mean, we, or, or then, and then when the cell phone came out, did you ever think, who cares if it has to come in a bag? It's a phone that can go with me other places. Who cares? Or if it has to be in the car. I remember our friends had car phones, a little mount that kind of came out of the dashboard, and you stuck it on there and had buttons on the back. I was like, that's what? I mean, who cares if it's stuck in your car? It didn't even, it didn't even cross our minds to go, we should make it about as thin as a pencil and, and have all these kinds of things. Or, I mean, uh, all the uh, arguments against uh, lazy kids not wanting to do algebra or math. Didn't all your teachers say, well, you're not going to walk around with a calculator in your pocket, are you? And you're like, well, yes, I am. It's actually a graphing calculator. And if you turn it sideways, you get way more buttons on it. So we do live in an era where everything, or in a world where everything can be improved upon. You can do that better. You can do that better. There's no way you could run faster than a four-minute mile. There's no way that you could get a man on a moon. There's no way that you, everything can be improved upon all the time. But God's decision, if something happens... He's providential over it. It couldn't have been better in any other way. It couldn't be improved upon because that would mean that there was a flaw. That would mean that it's less than perfect. 
So God's wisdom and his providence should just cause us to worship and be in awe of him. Because he can't, and nothing can be made any better that he has made. It's as good as it is. That's exactly how he wanted it. And then lastly, the third um, descriptor or property of his providence is powerful, says the, the answer. That God is power. He is power. And we, and we, so we look at like where is power? Like there's power over here, there's power plants, you put power in a battery, there's power in electricity. <laughs> hey, cute girl. Uh, but God is power. He doesn't have access to power. He just isn't. Everything he does is in full power. He doesn't need to charge up or build up strength. If we want to be able to do something, we got to build up to it, right? We got to, I got to go to the gym or I got to lift, or I got to condition my body, or if I want the power to go on a vacation, I got to save up and put money away. I got to charge up. I got to build towards that in order to have power. God just is it. So everything he does is his full power, pure, unhindered power, and that's how he rules his creation. Psalm 66, 6 through 7, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. I mean, this is talking about a uh, Moses and the Israelites. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules. This is who he is, who rules by his might or power forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. He rules by, by his power forever. That's how he rules. So that's question 11. His providence comforts us because what's the alternative? Whenever I'm talking to somebody who's struggling with this idea of God's sovereignty, I'm like, well, let's just, let's just go with, your, with what you're thinking right now. That means if you're praying to God, then you're just hoping that he'll come out on top in some kind of cosmic struggle. That God, what we, when we pray to God, what we're doing is we're asking him to roll up your sleeves, God, stretch, crack your knuckles, lift some weights, you know, you know sharpen your focus, and see if you can't make this thing happen. So when we pray and we don't get what we want or it doesn't come to the ends that we want, we can know for sure it's not because God wasn't able. It's because God didn't will it. It wasn't in his perfect will right now. Right now, maybe later, but not right now. And it wasn't because I didn't pray hard enough or I didn't try hard enough. Or, or, or he, he just got outmatched by Satan that day. God and Satan are not in a tennis match in the galaxy. And, and Satan gets a few good ones off here and there. Satan is a dog on a leash. And he lets the leash out every now and then because he chooses to. And he can yank it back and pin him down whenever he wants. It's not going to be a fight. It's not a struggle. There is no struggle between good and evil in, in, in God's realm. So that, I mean, that gives us such great comfort in prayer that God isn't a superhero who's our best shot and to, to fight off evil or to bring about good and the best good that we can see or conceive of. He is almighty. And that, that brings us so much comfort. And so too often, I think, uh, God, the concept of God rests too lightly on us. Not that, not that it's supposed to be heavy and crushing us, but it should be a, an awe of God instead of just like, a, eh, you're just like a really strong version of me who makes better decisions most of the time. No, you are, the all, you are entirely other than us. So looking at his providence, 
helps us see that and think through that. Well, that's all I got. That's enough. <laughs> that's all I needed to hear. You just tell me, hey, it's enough. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you. Oh, man. Well, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are so thankful, especially tonight, to be able to pray to you who can actually do whatever you want and whatever is right and good. That you have all of this power, but we need not fear you as a, in trembling, servile fear. That we fear you as in awe and respect. Because with all of this power, you are also perfectly good and perfectly holy and righteous. And we can come to you knowing that you can make things happen. And it doesn't cost you anything. And it's not, we're not asking you to do something that's really burdensome or heavy. That all things happen by the, by the, by the blink of an eye, by the, by the snap of a finger. I mean, we can't even think of how easy it is for you because that's as low as we can think. We start with creation that you can speak things into being, then you can certainly control things that you've spoken into being. And you certainly do. And you do towards the good, that you work all things together for good. We are wonderfully amazed by that. Thank you for showing us your greatness and then, and then leaving room that we top out on what we can know and we can look and see as if kind of through a glass ceiling of all that we can't know that there is an unknowableness to you, even though you are deeply and truly knowable. We are in awe. Lord, may you rest um, mightily on us and on our minds as we think of you and as we speak of you. Well, thank you for this time and allowing us to worship. We pray that it would be pleasing to you in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.